Welcome to Trevecca Community Church's Sermon Podcast Series. Each week we'll be streaming our sermon from within the sanctuary just for you. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from Matthew chapter 5. My name is Jordan Guthrie, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. And step nine says, we may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Matthew chapter 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister is something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. I guess I'll turn that on. Can you hear me? Ooh, I didn't think you'd want to hear me through the worship. Although, it was great to be next to Laura Newmar because she makes anybody sound better. <laughs> it was so nice. Well, uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone. All right. So, have you guys enjoyed this 12-step series? All right, good. I hope that it's um, bringing you to a place where you're able to kind of maybe look back at your life, some of the hurts that you've accumulated, maybe even some of the hurts that you've kind of projected onto other people along the way, um, because I believe that our 12 steps really do lead us to sanctification. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, um, and so step nine, is, step nine is where we are actually owning our feelings. We're owning our actions. We're owning our thoughts. And so up until now, we've done a good deal of work, you know, as I think, um, I, Steve, did you do step seven or step eight last? Step eight. Okay. So when, when we were coming through step, up until step eight, you know, we were really evaluating a lot of things. We're really taking a good look, in, in, instro, introspection. Um, we were really reflecting on those things. But when we get to step nine through 12, this is when we're actually shifting from a place of introspection into actual action, where we're taking action on the things that we've really reflected on. And so, excuse me. And so the movements of the steps that, uh, you guys have heard. Steps one through four are, I can't, you know, I'm, I just can't do it all on my own. Then we look at steps five through eight, and it's like, but God can, he can. And then steps nine through 12, we shift into, I think I'll let him, right? So we can really see the distinct difference of, we are literally going to let him work. And so this requires a great deal of humility. And so um, from step nine onward, we give God the freedom to put this action into making things right with him, making things right with ourselves, and making things right with other people. And other people could be one person. It could also be a collective group of people. Like even within our communities, there may be harm that we've done to others. And so reconciliation in all areas of life uh, can bring a tremendous amount of peace and joy. And so that's what I've loved about working the 12 Steps Numerous times is every time it's a greater sense of peace, a greater sense of joy that I've been able to experience in my life. And in recovery, we say, 
you know, let go and let God. And so that's really this, this pathway to recovery. And so today, I'm going to spend a significant amount of time in Genesis, and we're going to be talking about uh, Joseph. And so while I'm not going to read chapters 37 through 47, <laughs> um, I will read a lot between there. And so I'll be pulling some things out. And so this is a bit of kind of an inside-out look at Joseph, because I believe we tend to, when we think about Joseph, we automatically think about, like, here's this younger brother, and he was sold into slavery, and he was in slavery for all this time, and this poor guy, and then look, you know, God turned, you know, the, the beauty from ashes kind of story. But if we kind of take a look from the inside out, we can really see a great amount of spiritual immaturity that Joseph had and how God had to refine his character. God really had to lead him through some hard times in order for him to come to a place of um, humility. And then he was able to turn that humility into a place of offering amends. And that's what we're talking about is making amends today. And so when we, when we look at... Um, the great amount of forgiveness he offered his, to his family, um, he also had a lot to contribute to discord within his own family as well. And so oftentimes we lose sight of the offense in light of the defense. So we're so quick to be focusing on what somebody did to us that we lose sight of maybe what was the precursor to that and maybe how we contribute to that reaction. Um, I can think when my son was in middle school, he's gonna love you know, middle school stories now, it's really not about him, but um, when he was in middle school and he was in an inner city school and it was like fights in the you know, boys' bathroom or what have you, and I would say, like, honey, in life, you're going to have the choice to be the stopper or the starter. You know, you always have opportunities to stop something and you always have something, opportunities to start something. And so we have opportunities to start fights. You know, we also have opportunities to stop fights. Each of them require, might require some level of courage if we're trying to intervene for other people, but both ways they require a, a level of humility because when we realize, hey, if we've done something wrong, if we, if we stop it and we're humble about it and say, you're right, I offended you, what are you going to do then? Um, as a therapist in couples work, I usually say, like, hey, we so often get caught in a tug of war, like we're on opposing teams. What if we actually join the same team? and you let go of the rope. If you let go of the rope, you're not playing tug of war anymore. You've let it go. And so let's get on the same team with other people instead of tugging the rope. And so um, we don't wanna just like justify, right? And so what we tend to do is we justify what's done to us as reasons as to why we do what we do. And so we want to extend forgiveness and, and move forward. And so spiritual growth requires this shift from blaming other people to taking personal accountability. And in every scenario and in every situation, there's some part of us that we can take responsibility for. That could be, you know, when I get into, you know, a frustrating kind of moment, you know, I'm known for like my big eyes is what I usually say. You know, I get irritated and I'm like, you know, I mean, you can see it written all over my face. You know, I can take responsibility for my big eyes. I can take responsibility for those facial expressions. Maybe in the moment I'm not able to slow my roll enough to be able to stop that face from happening. Um, but I can come back and say, you know, if my husband says, I just saw you roll your eyes, I could be like, no, I didn't. You didn't see me do that. I could get into that tug of war, right? But if we're on the same team, it's like, I didn't realize that I did that. You're probably right because I was frustrated. And I can take personal responsibility for that. Okay, so let's get into Genesis. I don't know how long your sermons normally take, so uh, <laughs> I, I was going through it last night, and I said, honey, start your stopwatch, you know, <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I think maybe, 
so, all right, so we're going to talk, uh, as I say, about Joseph. So we're going to start, and I've kind of broken it down into some different sections here, and I hope that whoever's operating the slides can kind of keep up a bit with my pacing. And so my, my thought with, okay, so that's already there. Okay, so we're going to look at Genesis 37, kind of the passages 2 through 11. And so this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the son of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his own age. And so one day, Jacob had a special gift for Joseph, a beautiful robe. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in a field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up and your bundles gathered around me and bowed low before me. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king? Do you? Do you think we will actually, you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon, Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I have had another dream, he said. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time, he told the dream to his father as well as his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, said Jacob? Your mother and I and your brothers will actually come and bow before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. And so, as we can kind of see here, you know, we know that Joseph was the youngest. And I think it's also kind of a, an important little footnote here when we think about Joseph being the youngest. At that time, Joseph was the only child born of Rachel. And so when we look at that, if, if you kind of go back to, you know, VBS when you were a kid, perhaps if you haven't, haven't recalled too much about Joseph, you know, Joseph, it was just like love at first sight when he saw Rachel. And he, you know, he really wanted to marry Rachel. And so he had to work seven years to be able to get to the place to marry Rachel. And then when he got to the place to marry Rachel, his father-in-law Laban tricked him, and so he had to marry the older sister first. And then he had to work an additional seven years, so he had to work 14 years to be able to marry a wife. I don't know if there's any husbands in the room that had to work 14 years at getting to your wife, but <laughs> I would say that's, you know, there was quite some loyalty there, right? He must have really deeply loved her in order to stick around for 14 years just to be able to be married to her. And then she was barren. She wasn't able to have children. All the while, Leah is having children. You know, they're, um, at the time, you know, they had their slave girls, and they were having children. But Rachel, she was the one that could not have. And so Joseph was the only child born of Joseph and Rachel at that time. And so not only was he the youngest, but he was the one, you know, the special one that was produced out of his love from Rachel. And we can also see Joseph was a tattletale. Oh, did you see they did this? Did you see? You know, if you have siblings, have you had siblings that are like that? They're like, man, they just did this in the other room. I just saw them. Um, my son's an only child, so he doesn't have siblings. But we had neighbors. And we had this one particular neighbor that I would say, uh, you know, and he was a few years older, and I'd say, Warren, you can't cross the street until I've got to cross the street. And that kid would, like, bait him to cross the street. He would cross the street, and he'd be like, come here, Warren, come here. Your mom's not looking. Your mom's not looking so that my son would cross the street. And then he would come running across the street, and he's like, you know what Warren just did? He just crossed the street, and you didn't even know it. And he was disobedient. Is he going to be in trouble? I mean, he would literally, like, work his way, you know. But he was the youngest in his family, so he didn't have anybody else, I guess, to do that to. I don't really know. But, 
he kind of like took, took my son in that way. But maybe you have had people in your life that were the tattletale. That was Joseph. Then he was favored over all of the other siblings. And Joseph was arrogant with his God-given gifts. So he was given this gift of dreams and prophecies. And then he went around and was like, oh, and then you will bow before me. And you will do this before me. I mean, who wants to hear that? Come on. Those wouldn't be the reasons why God would give any of us gifts is so that we could be boastful with them. But if we also look here at the actions, so Joseph was spoiled and he was spiritually immature. And so the actions of Jacob and Joseph created a household where resentment and neglect grew rampant. I mean, this was like the perfect storm. This was the black mold of their family. This, con- this contributed to a great amount of emotional pain for Joseph's other, brother- other brothers. And so if we look at Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. We think about that in terms of discipline sometimes. That's the verse when I did preschool ministries. You know, that was like the train your child up in the way they should go. This was always a verse that kind of went right along with it. But when we think about it in terms of what was uh, Jacob's responsibility, or Rachel's not even mentioned in this, what was Rachel's responsibility as parents, um, you know, we have the responsibility not to show favoritism with our children. We have the responsibility to make sure that our children's emotional needs, their physical needs, those are being met. And in this household, you know, there was a lot of neglect happening. There was a lot of preferential treatment. And so it just created that perfect storm. And so their anger provoked hatred. And so much so, so much so that they despised him and they even thought about killing him. They're like, hey, if we get rid of him, then maybe we, we will be, you know, chosen. Maybe, maybe if something, you know, happens. And so they start to conspire about this. And so thanks to the oldest brother, Reuben, they didn't kill him. But what they did instead, you know, we know, he threw him into a pit. And so they lied that, you know, something had happened to Joseph and he died and he was never seen to begin seen never to be seen again. And so they did that so that they kind of cover their tracks, right? How many stories do we hear where we cover our tracks? We take, tell a bigger lie to cover another lie, right? Turns into a habit. And so in uh, Genesis 37, 31 through 33, um, it says, then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in the blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with the message, look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? See, they don't even claim him as our brother. Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him, and Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. And he grieved and he lamented for much time after that. And so perhaps even in this, in this family dynamic, and this is this um, spiritual immaturity that's kind of being laid out here, and in those bullet points, you know, this is the part where, you know, it's like, I can't, right? Like, Joseph is not in control over how his brothers view him. He's in control of his own actions, but he's not even in control of that because he's not doing it, right? So this is that, that first segment of this, the steps where we're like, I can't, you know? He's got to come to terms with it, and so he's got to do this hard work. And so perhaps this family dynamic may even ring true in your own families. Um, again, as a therapist, it's a lot of people coming to me with a lot of woundedness. I mean, I've, I see clients 13 and up. And so, you know, whether it's 13-year-olds lamenting about siblings or their parents or whoever, I mean, and I've had people that are, you know, very well-aged, and they can reflect back on times when 
a father, a teacher, a mother, somebody in their family or that was a, a caregiver let them down, said things that were inappropriate, did things that were not right, and they never got any they never got any amends that were made from it. And these are the types of woundedness that carry with us all the way through life. And so perhaps just even in that first segment, you may even be able to reflect on the people in your life, um, in your family, where there might be discord, where there may be um, a lack of reconciliation or love even that's within your household. And so in this next movement where he has to come to terms and recognize that, you know what, God can do something. God can. Then we move into the next passages. And here we go. Genesis 39. <clears throat> when Joseph was taken to Egypt by an Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he pleased Potiphar, and so soon he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of this entire household and everything he owned. And then Potiphar's wife, you know, had, had lust towards Joseph. He was a good-looking kid, and probably a young man by now. And so he accuses him of, uh, you know, trying to, you know, become inappropriate with her. And so she told Potiphar, she made up a story, more lies, right? That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his, his cloak with me. And so Potiphar took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. And so then he was there for some time. And then he was even given um, permission to be able to... He was gifted in administration, let's say that. And so he was given the opportunity to be able to lead in the capacity even within prison. And so the warden, had, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything and the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So in, in these trials of being sold into slavery and being put in prison, all of which lasted about 13 years, or some, kind of some estimation here, this brought a great amount of humility and this became the opportunity where Joseph became God honoring with his spiritual gifts of administration and dreams interpretation. And so when we move to 41, two full years after Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River, in his dream he saw fat seven healthy cows come up out of the river and begin grazing in the March grass. Then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile, but they were scrawny and thin, and these cows stood beside a fat cow on the riverbank. And so the next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dreams, and so he called for the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. And when Pharaoh told them his dreams, not one of them could tell him what they meant. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night and no one can tell me about it, but I've heard that you can tell me about this dream. And so Joseph says, it is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. And so he became God honoring with the spiritual gift of dream interpretation. And he's able to now actually glorify God and recognize that it's not me having these dreams so I can be boastful and, yeah, look at me and I'm some, you know, really great person. But instead, he's able to say, this is not of my own accord. 
you can only get to that place when it comes from humility. Because we all have a certain amount of gifts and talents. I don't have the greatest voice, but if I did, you know, I could sing and I could, you know, do all of the amazing things and I could give the glory to God or I could just be like, well, I've just taken these lessons and I continue to just, you know, do what I need to do in order to become better and better and better and it's all about my part of it. But when we're truly humble, we're giving God the glory for the things that he's given to us. And then... He goes on in um, 41, 47 through 52. As predicted, for seven more years, the land produced bumper crops. And during those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain from the surrounding fields. He also, during the first famine years, he had two sons born to his, he and his wife. And Joseph named his older son, for he said, God has made me forget all of my troubles and everyone in my father's family. And he had a second son, for he named uh, Ephraim. God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. And so he was in this, in this time where he's like, God can do great things. Not only was he glorifying God for that, but he was also giving God the freedom and the recognition that he was able to get to the place of forgiveness to his family, forgiveness of what had happened in his past, forgiveness of the time, this 13 years is a long time, to be in slavery and to be imprisoned, he was able to give the glory to God and be able to get to the place of that uh, forgiveness. And so as a result, Joseph becomes spiritually mature. So he goes from that, I can't, he's immature, to God can, and now he's becoming mature. So um, in 42, 1 through 8, Hope you guys are hanging with me here. I know it's a lot of scripture, but literally when, when he mentioned if I would do step nine, what came right to my head was Joseph. And I was like, this seems weird to me. So I just kept unpacking this and it got, it got me excited. Um, and so when Jacob heard that the grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise we'll die. Since Joseph was the governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling the grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger to them. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And so I can't even just, I can just sort of get a visual picture of what that would even be like. And I'm sure coming, flooding through his mind is even thinking through the dreams that he had when he was a 17-year-old, right? Where his, his brothers are coming to him and they are bowing about the grain. But he's standing there in that moment after this disconnect. But after the place where he's come to forgive them, after the place where he's come to terms that, you know what, despite what's happened to me, it's okay. God's going to work this out. And he's come to the place where he's able to actually look at them and, and have compassion for them. So Richard Rohr, I know that Breathing Underwater is the book that was kind of um, in, inspired, you know, part of this work through the 12 studies, uh, 12 steps. I love this, uh, this quote from Richard Ward. He says, we use skillful means to protect our humanity and to liberate the humanity of other people. And so Joseph in this moment, he had this opportunity where he had to be very skillful in the way that he was gonna protect his humanity. But then he also had very skillful, he had to be skillful in the way that he was going to protect the humanity of others. If he didn't protect the humanity of others, what could he have done? He could have just said, sorry, here's your amount of grain that you have, or I'm going to throw you in jail. And he kind of did a little bit of that at first. I didn't read that. He was a bit like, I could almost see his teenager part of self kind of emerge in that moment where he was like, 
well, I'm going to throw you in jail if you don't do da-da-da-da-da. Like, he automatically kind of wanted to go there, but then he had to, like, step back, you know? How many times do we want to do the right thing, but, like, that inner child or that inner teenager in ourselves start to emerge and we start to react the way we, you touch me first, you, you know, we want to do those kinds of things. They, like, come out and it's like, nope, Holy Spirit, take over, take over. I got to give it back to you. And then he steps back in that. And so then we move to this, this section here where it's Joseph is making amends. And so this takes us into Genesis 45. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was, and he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and word, word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them, so they came closer. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves. See, he's, giving, he's letting them off the hook. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This is God's work that you did what you did so that I could protect you. That's powerful. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more, and there will be neither plowing or harvesting, except for in their lives, right? Plowing of their hearts and harvesting. Oof. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all of the land of Egypt. Again, glory to God. So you can come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all of your children, your, grand, your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, and everything you own. Bring it all. I will take care of you. You harmed me. I love you. I will take care of you. I will protect you. That sounds a lot like Christ, doesn't it? Otherwise, if you stay, your, your household and all your animals will starve. And then weeping with joy, weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin, which was the younger brother of Rachel, born after him. And Rachel died in childbirth with Benjamin. Weeping with joy, he, he embraces this brother. And Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each brother and wept over them, and after them be they began talking freely with him. And so in this passage of Joseph making amends, we see that he verbally forgives his brothers. He blesses their families, and not just a blessing of like, you're forgiven, now you may go. He blesses their family, you're forgiven, and not only that, move in with me. And let me let, me let you live off of me. So he gives them tangible provisions. And then he even shows affection and joy. He's like weeping and, you know, throwing his arms around him. I mean, it's, it's just like a wonderful amount of joy and peace that he's had when he's been able to come to the place where he's making amends. I'm making amends by providing for you because I'm taking responsibility of my part in the woundedness that I caused our family. And so this reconciles their relationship And so what's the outcome of an amends, right? Does it just sort of stop there? No, it's a ripple effect. 
It's just like how wounds have a ripple effect and it just causes another domino to fall or another domino to fall and it leads into destruction. Amends lead into paths of righteousness. Amends lead into pathways of just reconciliation and joy and love and hope. And hope is the, hope is the greatest you know, foundation of our faith is hope that things will be different. Hope that in eternal life, hope that God will work in the midst of what we think of as just like the worst thing ever, right? And so the outcome of amends looks like this with the story of Joseph. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, now that your father and brothers have joined you here, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them to live. Give them the best land. You are my slave, but you get to pick the prime piece of meat off of that cow. Sorry for the vegetarians. You know, I mean, I used to, we used to go to, you know, Texas Day Brazil, and it'd be like, great because you could have the the good cuts of meat, you know, so typically I go with like the sirloin, six ounce, you know, at Outback, because it's like the the cheapest one, and I get a salted baked potato, you know, but this is like, he's going, you can have the T-bone, like if you want the T-bone, you can have the T-bone, and you want a loaded potato, no extra fees, and you want a salad, and you want some tiramisu, like you get it all, right, this is Pharaoh, this is like Pharaoh is saying to his slave, I mean, is this, this is just shocking, you know, And so give them the best land in Egypt. Let them live in the region of Goshen. If any of them have special skills, put them in charge. They have jobs. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. How old are you? Pharaoh asked him. Jacob replied, I have traveled this earth for 130 hard years, but my life has been short compared to the lives of my ancestors. And so Jacob blessed Pharaoh again before leaving his court. And as the time of Jacob's death drew near, Jacob called for his son Joseph and said to him, Please do me this favor. Put your hand under my thigh and swear that you will treat me with unfailing love by honoring this last request. Do not bury me in Egypt. And when I die, take my body out of Egypt and bury me with my ancestors. And so Joseph says, I'll do. I'll do what you ask. And so Joseph gave his oath and Jacob bowed humbly at the head of his bed. And so the outcome of this amends is peace in the midst of death, prosperity for the future, and then it's a testimony to unbelievers. I mean, when Jacob comes and he even blesses Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, wait a second, what's happening here? You know, he was even able to bless him, and he was able to provide this testimony of reconciliation in families. Something that when you're all-knowing, all-powerful, right, you don't need anybody else. You're just, you just, you don't need it. You don't need that. But when our aim is not about power and our aim is not about control and our aim is not about money and it's instead about living in community with people, reconciliation is about the best thing we have. Sharing our burdens. I love the, the old Chinese proverb that says when, you know, when we're in community, it, it enables us to double the joy and to have the grief. You know, if you're all out there alone, doing everything alone, you don't have any of that, you know? And so the outcome is really God is glorified and grace is abounding in Egypt. And so amends, I just wanted to like... No, because when we talked about, um, when we read the step nine, you know, and it says, make amends whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, you know. 
it's, it's worth noting that amends look a lot of different ways. They may not necessarily look like you get to directly go and apologize to somebody. You may not have that ability to be able to do that. They may be deceased. They may no longer even be here to be able to do that too. But there are other ways that we can offer amends. Or maybe if they are somebody who might not even be a healthy person for you, but you just want to get it off your chest. You can make indirect amends to people without getting back in relationship with people. Not all people are meant to be in relationship with you, and so you have to determine, you have to use some discernment, really pray about that. Um, but so that's when indirect amends can be a, a great solution. And indirect amends are when we might give back to the community in certain ways, do, the, do a greater good so that we're able to um, do that in honor of someone. We can write letters and maybe not mail them, but the idea is we are saying what we would want to say to them to their face, but we are unable to because we don't want to injure them, and we may not want to injure ourselves if there's something that's, um, you know, that would not be healthy for you, and so again, you have to use discernment from that. And so we have, those are the indirect amends to it. And then thinking about amends, and it's easy when we talk about 12-step because it's really about like our personal journey of recovery, so to speak. But amends is the perfect opportunity to start acting out on some of the collective woundedness. And so I think it's worth noting, thinking about what are some of the community amends that might need to be made sometimes. Um, so recently, we, my son just graduated high school and we went on a cruise to Alaska. And so we were in this cruise to Alaska. I was really excited. I love history. I'm the person that you probably don't want to, unless you like museums. Um, you don't want to take me on your trip because I'm like, ooh, there's this historical museum. There's this historical museum, you know. And they're both like, not another museum, you know. Um, but we stopped off in, it was Ketchikan. Yeah, Ketchikan. And there were these, and I was so excited about it because there were totem poles, and it's known for their totem poles there. And so we walked in the rain <laughs> um, all the way to get to this, historical heritage center, and we were standing before these, I mean, these massive totem poles that were just in front of us, and they were, I mean, so, so old. And so I just saw them like laying sideways, they were in glass cases, and some were vertical, and it was just absolutely amazing. And as I was reading these stories of these totem poles, it was just heartbreaking to me, because whenever, you know, our, our white ancestors came upon this area and of Alaska and they kind of took it on, they were like, this doesn't really serve a purpose. This says something about their gods. We serve Jesus and so let's cut them all down and that doesn't, that's not relevant to us. And so then they sold these totems. Well, their totem poles represented traditions. Their totem poles told stories about their ancestors. Um, and so they were just cut down, shipped off, sold, and they were in estates and in museums all over, you know, except for the places where it actually belonged and was most important to these native uh, indigenous tribes. And as I sat there, I just thought to myself, like, how do you make amends for something so great, you know, um, for such a great harm done to people? And then as I looked at these totem poles and all these artifacts, and I looked at, they were donated, and they were donated by people. And they weren't indigenous tribe people because they didn't, they weren't their belongings any longer. They were the estate of so-and-so, in memory of so-and-so who was in their personal collection. And so the way that we can make, and like these people did, we're able to make a collective, a community-centric amends is by donating back which, that which didn't belong to them. Not because they didn't pay for it and they stole it, 
but because it was something that actually didn't belong to them and didn't hold the same level of meaning that it did to the original people. And so to me, it was just like right in alignment with what I had been reading and studying and preparing for this. And I just thought like, that's how we can do these community amends. There are many, many ways in our communities where there's harm, there's hurt, and so there's an opportunity for each day. And so each day, we are given a new opportunity to extend grace and healing to ourselves, those in our family, and those in our communities. And this is exciting because this leads us to a greater sense of freedom, and this continues the work of that sanctification in our life that work of being more and more Christ-like every single day, sacrificial to our pride, sacrificial to our power, sacrificial to our control, that is, that's, the, that's the goal for us as Christians. And so Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them all will obtain mercy. And so taking action on our moral inventory by offering and receiving forgiveness, if people are trying to make amends to us, we receive it. And humbly making amends enables us to present our offering at the altar with a clear conscience and a whole heart. This is an offering that is pleasing to the Lord, right? This is what he wants from us. And so in closing, I would just encourage, myself included, all of us, to surrender our pride to surrender our hearts daily and to pursue the path of righteousness for us all. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite Pastor Larry to come up, and he's going to lead us in the pastoral prayer and communion today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join us on campus next week, we have discipleship classes beginning at 9 a.m. followed by service at 10.30. That service will be streamed to Facebook Live. We hope to see you there.